You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. All right, welcome back, everyone. This is the showdown the internet has been waiting for. Classic Westerns versus Spaghetti Westerns. Let's settle this once and for all. We may just end up reaching for a gun stairs so look out. If you hear a shot, remember, you're listening to a podcast. Bullets cannot hurt you, though perhaps words can. We will center this episode on one of the most common Western tropes of all, the stranger. We have selected two of the biggest and most respected Westerns where a stranger rides into town and takes up a cause. The classic Western is Chain, the legendary and many would claim subversive George Stevens Western from 1953. And the spaghetti Western is, of course, The Great Silence. Sergio Corbucci's equally legendary and unusually snowy Western set in Utah. So, are you screaming yet? Have shots been fired? We are talking about classic versus spaghetti and we're not even doing John Ford versus Sergio Leone. Though if you do want that Leone hit, we will actually do a Dollar Trilogy podcast. So don't you worry, we will get to it eventually. And even in this episode, Leone and Ford will most likely be mentioned as well. That's right, we will not just compare these two films to each other, but to the rest of classic and spaghetti westerns as well, and explore their relationships, their differences, and their similarities. But let's get this battle going, or heaven forbid, a common nuance discussion. Yeah, let's hope it's not that. So let's get started with one of the quick and easy questions that will just get everyone's blood boiling right away. I'll turn to my co-hosts, Adam and Tom, and ask them the question that sparks shootouts all across the web. Spaghetti Westerns or Classic Westerns? What say you? And we can start with Adam. Hi, this is Adam from New York City on the ICM forum. I'm known as Blanco. Well, Chris, this is a really tough one. I'm going to take an easy way out and say I kind of fall in the middle. If you made a list of all the Westerns I love, I think there would be far more classic Westerns than spaghetti Westerns. But if you look at just the top Westerns I love, and I went back and I looked at my list from 2016 for the uh, ICM forum's favorite Westerns vote, right at the top there would be plenty of spaghetti Westerns in the top ten. Uh, my problem with spaghetti westerns is I think once you get past maybe the best 20 movies, the quality falls off very sharply. I'm going to hedge my bets and stay in the middle, say I'd probably lean towards classic westerns, but uh, I have great love for the spaghetti westerns as well. Hi, it's Tom from England. This is a much easier question for me. I certainly appreciate the traditional westerns, and there's many of them that I enjoy. But I absolutely love spaghetti westerns. There's something about the violence, the music, the tragedy surrounding most of the films as well. Really connects with me. So I've got to say spaghetti westerns. How about you, Chris? What do you think? Well, honestly, if you had asked me this question maybe just like five, ten years ago, I would have jumped on spaghetti westerns right away because... The Dollars Trilogy, Once Upon a Time in the West, you know, The Great Silence, a large amount of Sergio Kubrick's other films as well, not to mention Sergio Salima's films. They do something that is so interesting and so diverse with the music, the atmosphere, like Tom mentioned, the violence. They're cooler, let's just say that. Or at least at the time, I thought they were cooler. They were more awe-inspiring experiences in a way. But as time goes on, I've started to come to the same realization that you did, in that there really aren't that many great spaghetti westerns. There's the three Sergios, like I just mentioned, Leone, Corbucci, and Solima. And beyond that, you know, you get slim pickings very, very fast. In fact, I started to look up all of the lists of the greatest spaghetti westerns of all time. Usually, the top ten would be films from just those directors. Like, sometimes with one additional film thrown in, but that's it. So I just think that overall, there's just so few spaghetti wrestlers that really stand out. It is to really say that can win somehow, especially when, you know, compared to all of the golden age. And then, like, 
if you look at the classic westerns, you know, from Rio Bravo to you know, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, there, there's so much power there as well. And so many of them are quite cool. Like even the more the mid or lower mid-level budget films, like those from Under the Told, for instance, you have so much coolness in the colors and the shots. And then you have the Western noirs as well, which, which do something completely different with the genre. So I just, I have to say hands down, classic Westerns. I love what you say about these being cooler, Chris. You're completely right. There's something about the experience that just takes over. Although they have potentially less meaning, less message behind them than a lot of the classic Westerns, it's an experience that is kind of unrivaled when you consider the Western genre. I think that it's necessary to think a little bit about how the spaghetti Western came to be. And I'm not an expert in spaghettis at all, but from what I know, I believe that basically it emerged as sort of a cheap copycat genre that the Italian studios decided to do. They knew the popularity of American Westerns. They decided to do their own. And because so many of them were made so very cheaply, that very much influenced the aesthetic of spaghetti Westerns. I think in many cases, it led to some really slipshod movies. But there were certain directors, specifically some of the ones you mentioned, Chris, that really were able to take the freedom of the Italian studio system, or at least the sense of the Italian studio system was different from Hollywood, and they were able to do something really new with Westerns. And that led to some of that power and beauty and coolness that you guys mentioned. I think you're completely right, Adam, especially if you look at some of the smaller spaghetti westerns that kind of go unnoticed. Like, there's a lot of room to get creative. There are some almost surreal films in there that can completely shock you. Even the films from Sergio Lima has these almost existential element to them as well, especially if you see it face-to-face. So it's just really interesting what some of these directors could get away with inside what was technically meant to be these pulpy, quick buck movies. One other thing that's worth mentioning of spaghetti westerns is that they came around because westerns started to lose popularity towards the late 50s in the US. There was shows like Laramie or Rawhide and different from their visits to the cinema, epics like Ben-Hur and Al Cid were becoming popular and lack of new western films encouraged other countries to produce their own westerns which is why a lot of it shifted towards italy and and spain and and the dawn of the spaghetti westerns one thing that almost blew me away was when doing research for this podcast I, i looked up just how many italian spaghetti westerns had actually been produced and over the period from you know, around 1963, 1964, when the genre really started to take off, and the late 70s, there were over 500 films. So it just boggles your mind a little bit, like with the few films we're talking about today, like the few films that really stood out, there literally were half a thousand films out there, most of which went completely, completely unnoticed. But that also rivals the classic Westerns, where, you know, we'd almost have 1,000 films a year from Hollywood just pumping them out. I mean, they were not just the superhero movies of the day. They were, like, beyond extreme with just how many Westerns were out every single week. It's incredible how Western-oriented old Hollywood used to be. It's a good point, Chris. And I think it's important to mention that when I said earlier that I tended more towards classic Westerns and spaghetti Westerns, a lot of that is just because... Hollywood was making so many more classic Westerns and putting so much more money into it than the Italian studios. And I think it's really worth examining why that was, why the Western was so popular. At a certain point in the 50s, not only was Hollywood releasing a couple of hundred Westerns every year, but Westerns completely dominated the TV schedule. A majority of the top 20 TV shows were Westerns. And ones like Rawhide became these legendary series that lasted multiple decades. So I want to mention a little bit about the classic Western. And what I think is really important to think about is that to me, Western is not just an element in pop culture. It represents a kind of national mythology of the United States. And I want to use those terms carefully. When I say mythology, I'm talking about the sort of stories and folklore that help express a group of people's identity, their moral consciousness, their perspective on themselves and on history. 
the thing I always found really curious about American culture is that unlike other nations where the sort of the national mythology harkens back to a point of founding like a war of independence, in American culture, there's relatively little cultural content about the war of independence. Instead, a bulk of cultural content with regard to the past is directed towards Westerns. And that really speaks to perhaps the fundamental process of not the United States, but really the Americas, which is when people think of it historically, when people think of its founding, it's not about a war of independence. It's rather a process of settling, of colonialism, and also of expulsion of indigenous peoples. And this to me is why the Western is so popular, why there were so many hundreds of them, really from the founding of cinema up to the 70s when they fell out of favor for reasons we can talk about. And of course, one of these thousands and thousands of films that hit the big screen was Shane, released in 1953, directed by one of the most prominent Western directors, George Stevens, and starring the less popular but, but still quite notable Alan Ladd as the stranger riding into town, Shane himself. And the story here is remarkably simple, but what critics and academics, fans, like literally everyone has read into this film over the years, just gets infinitely more and more and more complex as everything from Freud to revisionism to, you know, sexual tension and anything you can imagine is read into this film. Shane comes across a homestead where Van Heflin and his wife, played by Sean Arthur, or even her last major role. As always, there is a conflict here. The homesteads are interrupting the flow of a rich rancher. He feels like these homesteaders are just coming, taking his land, ruin his livelihood. And this, of course, causes conflict where, as always, where the rich rancher and the homesteader clash. Their values clash, their power clash, and Shane, of course, gets involved on the side of the underdog. But unlike many films that are completely black and white, there is actually degrees of nuance there. There is, of course, violence. There is, of course, clarity of who's good or evil, if you will. But it's remarkable how the rancher consistently wants to buy out or talk with the homesteaders. The degree of nuance, the degree of civility, and even the way Alan Ladd portrays Shane in many ways subverts people's expectations of what the Western, especially at this time, is supposed to be. So let me ask you, what's your impression of Shane? And what's your history with it? And what do you think about it? I dearly, dearly love Shane, and rewatching it again this week only underscored my love for it. Uh, it's a movie I guess I've seen three times now. I saw it when I was a kid, probably when I was 11 or 12, and I liked it then. I saw it in college as part of a class called Westward Expansion in American History, and I loved it then, and I loved it even more this past week. I think it's a great example of classic Western but it still has some revisionist elements, some subversive elements, as uh, Chris mentioned. What I love perhaps most about it is that while it is a typical Western narrative, perhaps the most typical Western narrative, in which a stranger comes into town and offers his martial skills at the behest of the righteous townspeople, what I really love about it is there's this incredibly dense interweaving of themes and narrative elements, so much is communicated in Shane with just very quick words or a very quick shot. You see it from the very beginning when Shane arrives and little Joey Starrett, played by Brandon Wilde, pumps his shotgun, Shane reacts very violently. And just in that one shot, we suddenly understand the most important thing we need to know about Shane, that he is a man who is familiar with guns and who is also very jumpy. That's just one example of how the movie layers in these important character elements very quickly. And as we go through the movie, the movie becomes more and more layered until we're dealing with many different themes at once. I watched Shane this week for the first time and I really enjoyed it. I don't think I was as enamored with it as Adam was, but there was a lot that I enjoyed in it. I love how it starts, like many great Westerns do, with a mysterious stranger riding into town. 
And there was quite a lot of violence for a Hollywood Western of this area. The majority of it seemed to be fist fights over gunfights. And I think it's a great metaphor for the evolution of the United States as well. Shane comes along to defend the truth and justice. And it's a great underdog story. One thing that I thought was uh, quite amusing was that there was no whorehouse in the town. That's something that you see a lot in spaghetti westerns. So there's no wonder that the ranchers are intent on riling up the settlers. Their only outlet they have is gambling and drinking in the bar. <laughs> I think you've also pointed out, or at least came across something that's quite interesting here, and just how different the worlds of the spaghetti western and the classic western is. It just in terms of what exists in that world, what characters exist. But we'll get in a little bit later. We'll go through just why we picked these two films. Um, I, I also had a very similar reaction to Tom, to be honest. I saw it for the second time today, and both times I found Shane to be a really good movie. It is just beautifully shot. And I believe it was even a bit of a revolutionary movie in this way. It was one of the first films to use this type of widescreen. They, they just wanted to be so much more striking than the type of Western people would see on their television. And the colors are beautiful, the landscape is beautiful, the prairie is beautiful. It's just very, very well composed. And I also want to give credit where credit is due for the silent and, I won't say underused, perfectly well used villain or henchman of Jack Palance, the black-hatted gunslinger riding into town, eventually becoming Shane's nemesis. Just, he says so little. Uh, even when he comes into town, he walks his horse. He's not riding. But, and there, there's some Hollywood legends here that says that Jack Pounce was just so scared of horses that like, they could barely put him on a horse, that any shot of him on a horse just looked too awkward. So they had to compromise wherever possible. But the way that Jack Pounce portrays his character, Wilson, as just this incredible threat, but incredibly reasonable threat, with logic and a type of code of his own, was incredibly effective. I love Jack Palance in this movie. Uh, he provides a maximum of menace with a minimum of words. He is a great villain, and I think the way he was shot by George Stevens was also very effective. You mentioned his very slow entrance into town on the horse, and there's this great scene where he enters the bar, and he has almost a spectral, ghostly presence. Uh, there's this weird dissolve as he crosses the saloon when he first enters the story. He's certainly a very sinister villain, and I like your comparison, or your point rather, about him being a, a spectral villain, and I love how this notion has kind of taken further in, in some spaghetti westerns, where the origins of the either the protagonist or the villain are shrouded in, in mystery. I like how Chris mentioned the colours and the beautiful visuals in the film. It is very striking, very colourful. The ranch that you see at the start, it, it looks like a peaceful place to live until the villains arrive on scene. I'd also like to point out a brilliant double exposure shot that really impressed me, where it was showing the anger of Starrett as the flames were rising up from a settler's household. And that was incredibly striking and one of my favourite moments of the film. I thought one of the most important elements was this conflict between the homesteaders and the ranchers. And in a certain way, this is a bit unusual, a bit subversive. The traditional Western conflict is between settlers and usually antagonists that is seen as exterior to the community. Very often those were Indians who are absent from this movie, or it was the environment itself, which was very threatening. In this case, oddly enough, the antagonist is other settlers. It is ranchers who came beforehand, which is a bit unusual. In a weird way, I think it's actually very strongly imbued with a sense of American history. It really goes back to this sort of Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian argument about what the United States should be. Should it be a nation of commerce and big business, as we see with the large rancher represented by Riker, or should it be a nation of small landholders? And that to me is, became sort of the central conflict of the movie. I definitely picked up on that aspect of the film as well, Adam. These smaller businesses vying for an opportunity just to survive and get by up against a, a large, greedy corporation was something that is quite relevant for today's society. 
subtly enough, one of one of the best things about Shane is that even in this case, the the greedy corporation is is one we eventually learn more about, becomes a bit three-dimensional. And there's this great scene in the middle movie, I think it's the best scene in the movie, where Riker, the big rancher, comes to the Starrett household at night. And uh, he makes Starrett an offer to end the conflict between them, that Starrett will work for him. Uh, and it's a great scene for a couple of reasons. First of all, is we finally learn more about Riker, and we come to understand the conflict from his point of view. Unlike most Western antagonists, he becomes a more three-dimensional character at that point. Another great part of the scene is the tension between Wilson and Shane. It's the first time they've met, although they're aware of each other's presence. And they say not a single word to each other in that scene. They spend the entire scene kind of sizing each other up, uh, examining each other for danger and as a threat. And in one of the best moments, they both end up using the same tin cup to drink water, which to me was an expression of sort of mutualism, of recognition. We're both gunfighters. We have something in common. I think the big negative for me in this film, and it's, it's interesting because this was also one of the more, at least to me, intriguing elements of it, but it, it is the child of the married couple. It, it's just one of the most infuriating obnoxious characters I've ever seen on screen. I'm sorry to say so. I, I know some of you might disagree, but just the way he speaks, the way he idolizes, the way he, he, um, <laughs> the way he talks, like this, you can't be yellow, Shane. Like this, it, it, it's just infuriates me to the core. But at the same time, and I'm going to mention this a little bit later, but that character also seemed to have a bit of a meta element to him, which excited me quite a bit. But just before I get to that, well, what did you guys think of the child actor? I think that, Chris, you're not alone in hating the kid. I think that's probably the most common objection to Shane. People can't stand the kid. Uh, I don't feel it quite as much itself, just because even though he's so central to screen time, he has so much screen time, he's kind of not very relevant to the plot. Um, I also just want to say in defense of Brendan DeWild that he became a great actor uh, as an older child and adult and died very tragically young, uh, no, not before starring in another superb Western HUD. Um, I'm very, though, uh, interested to hear, Chris, your, your theory of the kid's presence in the movie because you expressed it earlier to us, and um, it's really an interpretation I haven't heard before, but I'm very intrigued by I was also quite close to being infuriated with the child acting at certain points in the film. There are moments of his performance that are kind of endearing, but then there are also aspects of it which kind of take away from the film. I understand that he plays an important and integral role to the film, though. So, you know, he is a key character as far as we're concerned. Chris, please, please tell us your theory. I can't wait to hear it. I'm just going to let you wait a little bit longer because there was one really fun anecdote about how obnoxious the child was on set as well, even in real life. Uh, that, you know, in that final scene, I'm going to, we're going to add in a spoiler very, very, very soon, but there, there is just this one scene which is very emotional. And I'm not going to spoil what it is, but essentially in making grimaces every single time he came to the most emotional climax, to the point that Alan Ladd literally had to call in the child's father on the threat of violence. <laughs> but, but yeah, to get to my theory, and, and, and I, I realized this is reaching a little bit, and I made this excessive claim that in a way... Shane could be described as the first Funny Games, you know, the Haneke film with the two killers who keep winking at the camera, inviting us, the audience member, to kind of be part of their journey as they harass and put the family through extreme horror. You know, it's this feeling of in Funny Games that you are in on it, you're in on the violence, you want that violence, that's why you came to see the movie. And in Shane, which is a movie with so many meta elements and commentary on the West, on America, on you know getting the guns out of the valley, if you will, saying goodbye to the West in many ways. The child seems to be an audience standing. It's it's not as extreme as Funny Games. Just to be clear that comment is way out there. But 
this child seems to be saying and intending the same things that the audience are saying and intending. You know, all of these children who grew up with Western, who just wanted Shane to go in there and shoot everybody, who just wanted Shane to be a badass, who just wanted Shane to go that extra mile, and for the West to be this hard, cool place of gunslingers. And you see this kind of contrast between the kids and this idealization of the West and idealization of all of these tropes, so sharing on blood, sharing on gunfight, with the reality of you know, his mother who's terrified of it, and this much bleaker representation of violence and something you should not do, you know, to the point that it almost seems like uh, that there's two interpretations from here. One is simply that Stevens is trying to say this idealization is the idea of children is not real. And the second one, which is a bit more stark and very interesting to me, is that the child is meant to be the audience and that the audience is actually, just like in Funny Games, meant to feel awkward and uncomfortable about what the child is saying and, and doing, which could also tie into how obnoxious many people find the child to be, so that they realize that, no, this is not actually good. I really like this theory, Chris. Um... It's something that totally escaped me when I saw the movie. I didn't pick up on it at all. I kind of saw the element of the kid being there as being this sort of very, very minor theme of the innocence of youth. I really like your interpretation more. I'm not sure it's what George Stevens and the scriptwriter intended, but without making this into a discussion of, you know, how we interpret movies, I don't necessarily think that authorial intention is the only important basis of interpreting a movie. I think very much any media product belongs to the audience as well. And I think it's just very interesting theory about how the kid represents the audience and perhaps the audience's unrealistic expectations. That's a bold and brilliant comparison, Chris. I absolutely love it. You would never in a million years dream of comparing those two films, but you've done it and backed it up with lots of evidence to support why they're so similar. And I think that it's a, a great comparison to make. The other thing about the presence of the kid in the movie and about this idea that he represents the audience's unrealistic expectations, especially with regard to violence, is it's related to what I think is probably the other most important narrative theme in the story. I already mentioned the uh, landholders versus homesteaders conflict. To me, the other conflict is an internal conflict. It's the conflict within Shane himself. And it's one of the things that makes him such a fascinating character, even though he doesn't really say that much in the movie. The conflict is between his past as a gunfighter and his imagined future as um, a farmer or as just someone who's more oriented towards domestic and community purposes. Uh, it's one of the central conflicts in Westerns itself. Westerns celebrate the establishment of community, the establishment of society as society in this case defined as settler American society as society moves west. Uh, and this is a theme that comes up again and again in many Westerns, the theme of the gunman, the man who offers his righteous fighting powers to the community and whether he can truly become part of a community. Most famously, that's a theme that was explored a few years later in The Searchers, but it's not the only one. I love just the, the beginning of the movie when Shane is seduced by the prospect of community and domesticity. He comes across this ranch. He sees the stump of the tree outside during dinner, and he goes out and he begins working on the stump. And Van Heflin, as Joe Starrett, joins him, and together they're finally able to get this tree stump out of the ground. And through that task, they ultimately discover their own friendship. And that, to me, represents Shane's impulse towards community, towards domesticity. It's an impulse he can never really follow upon. Throughout the entire movie, he's sort of an outsider. He's always sort of shown behind corners or through windows. He always kind of stands apart. And that sort of gets us more towards the, the end of the movie where we discover really, can Shane be a part of this community? And another thing that stops him from really joining the community is this apparent interest and almost sexual tension between Shane and John Arthur's character, where you know you kind of see this bonding to the point that you know even uh, Van Heflin's character points this out at one part of the movie that you know these two characters seem like they could almost belong together, uh, but but of course she's married and of course she wouldn't leave her husband. So you, you also have this thing where 
you know, how would that relationship de develop if he chooses to stay, if he chooses to be there? How can this be resolved? There, there's a lot of these elements as well where he just, this is stopping him from truly being able to be part of the community and the family. Sexual and romantic tension there is treated so subtly. It's barely, barely mentioned, but it is very important to the story. And as you said, Chris, it's important to understanding how Shane can't be part of the community. There's a part near the end before the final fight where Joe Starr sort of says, if something happens to me, you'll be taken care of. And the hint is that Shane will take care of you. That sort of seems one way to resolve this sort of barely mentioned love triangle. Ultimately, the story goes in another way. And with that, let's carry it over to the ending itself and the spoiler section. Don't worry if you want to skip ahead, look in the description of the podcast and you can just jump to that timestamp. Spoiler warning. Now, of course, Joe Starrett, one half of his character, doesn't go into town. Shane knocks him out and rides in alone, taking his place, going into the ambush against Riker, where he's also being given the opportunity to back out, to leave, but he doesn't take it. The tension increases and there is a shootout. Also important to the scene is that as Shane rides away, Joey, the child, runs after him. Shane's on horseback, Joey's on foot, but through the entire way down to town, Joey runs after them and he sees the entire shootout. Tying this back to my theory a little bit, like it almost feels like the audience as well is running after and following Shane and witnessing this interaction that we can see it both through our eyes and through Joey's eyes. And the interesting thing here is that the shootout follows the standard tropes to a teeth. Shane, of course, being the best, takes care of both Riker and Wilson. He draws second, but shoots first. He is the hero. But there is a third gunman. And if it was not for Joey, the third gunman would have shot Shane down. But Joey yells out. Shane turns around and there's two shots. Shane is hit. He's clearly hit. He sits down with Joey. He talks to him. He explains to him that the guns have finally left the valley. What Joey's mother has been talking about all along. And he rides out. Here there are also so many questions. Does Shane die or doesn't he? Is he already dead in the final shot? Where you see his hand dangling over his horse. What do you guys think? And what are your takeaways from this ending? I think it's a fitting ending and one that has layers of tragedy in there. Shane has found a place where he's become accepted and welcomed and he's stood up for the rights of these people. But in doing so, he's kind of driven himself away because he now knows that there's no place for him here because he's been as much a part of the violence as the villains of the piece. I love the fact that Shane starts and ends in the same way, with a similar shot of the young child Joey watching Shane either arrive or leave in the distance. And it puts in place this idea that Shane has potentially been in a similar situation than this before. He may have done this at other locations throughout the country, and he may be going on in search of a better future for himself, but he could just end up facing similar situations elsewhere. I agree with Tom. It is sort of a tragic ending, and it is an ending that suggests a theme of recurrence for the Shane character, that this has happened before. And it's it's a theme that, you know, I, I, I've seen in other Westerns. I think of the, the Gregory Peck Western, um, The Gunfighter, which I think came out the year before, or a couple of years before, 1950. That's also about a gunfighter who can't escape his past. He knows that the thing that makes him distinctive, the biggest skills he offers, his skills with his fists and with his guns, is something that separates him from the homesteaders in the valley. And that as a result, he's both morally compelled to fight on their behalf and equally morally compelled to not be part of their community. And thus, it's a very sort of sad movie, whether or not you think Shane survives, which is, of course, 
uh, a controversial point. I think that's also one of those really interesting theories because so many people focus on just did Shane die or didn't he? But there's also this, this like you said, this circular idea of just even if he didn't die, this is a pattern that Shane will repeat over and over and over again. And there's, there's quite a bit of poetry to that reading of the ending as well. I just have to add with regard to the whole is Shane dead argument, this is, this is an argument, and I do mean an argument I've, I've had with a friend in the past. I had a friend who insisted Shane is definitely dead. Uh, I thought in earlier viewings that the movie was going for a strategy of purposeful ambiguity. Now seeing it for the third time, uh, I guess maybe it was only the third time I picked up on the fact that Shane's exit shot is him going over the hill through the cemetery, which I guess to me is a pretty clear signal that the movie wants us to think that he is riding to his death. I like how the choice is left up to the audience with that. It's a nice, ambiguous ending. There's a clear indicator that can support that Shane has died, but then there's the hope that he, he has survived to, to live on another day. And I like that the audience get to choose what fits their um, enjoyment of the film the best. I think what's also a little bit interesting here is that even here in this ambiguity, you have the same question you've been having within the entire film, this idealization of the West where the hero always saves the day and rides into the sunset. And the more colder, bleak and hard reality that the film essentially says the world is. And the question then is, do you take that idealized version of the West or the reality of the West? I think it's fascinating to add that these themes and notions are still being explored by filmmakers today. I didn't realize how much so at the time when I watched Logan, the superhero film, there's some clear references to Shane throughout. You see clips from the film and it pays homage to it directly. At the time, I hadn't seen Shane, but now seeing Shane, I'd love to revisit Logan and just compare and see what other themes it borrows from Shane. That's completely true. The director came out and said that, you know, Shane is one of the main, if not the main inspiration behind the movie and the plot as well. So it's a very, very good comparison. And this takes us over to The Great Silence, which is immediately striking thanks to the snowy backdrop of the mountains of Utah. I just can't understate the beauty of snowy landscapes in Westerns. It adds this darkness that really should have been used more, but just wasn't. Bringing up snowy westerns in itself could be such a great podcast for a future episode. But let, let's get beyond that for a second. The plot is, just as with Shane, incredibly simple. A set of criminals are awaiting amnesty. Or not even criminals, many of them claim it to be completely innocent, but just unjustly placed on a list. And a set of bounty hunters are trying to just kill as many of these men and even women as possible before this happens. This adds a strong moral dimension of law versus justice. The bounty hunters are just cruel and kill when they can't take prisoners, often pretending that their targets will live if they just give themselves up before shooting them immediately at the first opportunity. The, the entire film just lives within this extreme cruelty. It dwells on it repeatedly, and their callousness, especially just embodied in the persona Kinski brings to life here as the leader of these bounty hunters, is just incredibly stark. Just as in Shane, a stranger, here played by John Louis Trintignant, rides into all of this. Just like Shane and the bad guy in Shane, Wilson. He has the code that he draws second, but shoots first. And the interesting thing here is that he is hired by the widow of one of the executed men who is desperate for revenge and will go to any lengths to get it. And of course, the great silence, as a hero is called, takes up her cause and starts to, in a way, just like Wilson in Shane, put himself in situation where he can legally kill and this is also such an interesting comparison between them. But beyond the trope of the stranger, you have this focus of killing, but within the law. And this focus of killing is taken to the very extreme. It's an incredibly 
violent western even for the time it was made and it could arguably be considered Kabuchi's finest western his mute hero in Jean-Louis Trontignan is a stroke of genius and it incorporates a tragic backstory into a, a bleak tale of revenge one of the main things for me that makes it such a striking film is Ennio Morricone's haunting score that it kind of does most of the talking it steers up an emotional response in the viewer and fills in the gaps where there's not much conversation going on. And there's lots of brooding shots of the villains and the protagonists deciding what to do next, reaching for their guns. And it really builds up a lot of tension here. Kinski is also excellent as the villain Loco. It's a role that he was born to play. He casts such a great sense of menace with his character, kind of shrouded in this headpiece that he wears for most of the film. And it really is a very dark and and pessimistic Western. I think you've both done a a lovely job of elucidating perhaps the two central themes of this movie. On one hand, uh, the law, as Chris said. On the other hand, death, as Tom said. This is a movie that is completely immersed in death and violence. We see it from the very opening scene where Jean-Louis Tritignan, as silence, rides into a snowy valley. He's ambushed by bounty hunters. He shoots four of them. One of the bounty hunters attempts to surrender, but Silence then shoots off his thumbs. And if that isn't enough, one of the bandits nearby then finishes off this newly thumbless bounty hunter. It's less than four minutes into the movie and already five people are dead. And one of them certainly killed upon surrendering. That definitely goes against the classic tropes of the Western. Another theme is the law, and this is something that comes up again and again throughout the movie to the point where there's one specific line that is said twice, it's all according to the law. When we first hear this line halfway through the movie, we already have a sense that it's not really a very honest line, and by the end of the movie, we know it's actually a bitterly ironic line because we've come to understand that the law is not protecting justice as the hapless sheriff played by Frank Wolf suggests, but the law is protecting money. I think it's fascinating that towards the start of the film when the sheriff realises where he's been posted and what it may entail visiting this town. It's incredible to think the transformation that he, he makes. He's very reluctant at the start, but when he accepts his job and he gets to the location, he actually does a pretty fine job of trying to maintain law and order. Yeah, yeah, I just want to comment on that just briefly and just move slightly away from the Great Silence for a second because one of the reasons why we settled for Shane and the Great Silence was because we really struggled to do a, you know, a, a one-on-one comparison between a classic Western and a spaghetti Western because the tropes are so incredibly different. The stranger trope was really one of the few tropes that really survived. If you look at classic westerns, you have the army westerns often against Indians, and you have the town westerns often embodied by a sheriff. And in spaghetti westerns, and also the later revisionist westerns in America, we almost never follow the sheriff. The sheriff, if anything, is usually, if shown, an antagonist, a force of evil, a force of corruption, And here, in The Great Silence, we actually get a sheriff that is neither incompetent, a complete moron, or bad. I mean, it obviously plays a little bit with it. He is naive in some ways, but he is actually shown as just, lawful, caring. He's probably the most likable and good person in the entire film, and that's so incredibly unusual for a spaghetti western. I have to say, I have a slightly different reading of the sheriff. I see him as being kind of buffoonish. Uh, There's no doubt, though, that he means well. And he has this line halfway through the movie where he says to Klaus Kinski, the West will be governed by justice, not by violence. But I think that highlights him, perhaps not as incompetent, but at least, as you said, Chris, as naive. And I think it's his naivete that becomes his defining character trait. Throughout the movie, he seems completely blind to just how much danger he's placed himself in, to the fact that he is not giving the bounty hunters, specifically Kinski, respect or regarding them as a true threat as they should be. But 
to get to this point you make about protagonist, I agree that the sort of the spaghetti westerns have left good sheriffs far behind. I found really peculiar about this movie was the treatment of bounty hunters. In previous spaghetti westerns, we've seen bounty hunters as heroes, which itself, of course, is is kind of outrageous and ridiculous. We would never see a bounty hunter as a hero in a classic Western. But what makes The Great Silence even more bleak is here even the bounty hunters themselves are evil. I would also like to draw a bit of an interesting comparison again between Shane and The Great Silence, because in a way the personas of Shane and Wilson and here The the Great Silence and Loco have been flipped. In Shane, you have... Well, Shane being this this character, you kind of underestimate. A lot of people have pointed out how he's even made to look a bit effeminate. You know, people believe he's a coward or call him a sob popper and throw all kinds of derogatory terms to him because they don't take him seriously. They underestimate him. They keep underestimating him. And that's how a lot of the characters view Loco. Granted, he plays himself a little bit more of a buffoon, like this friendly, bizarre buffoon, which has a kind of earnestness to them, which is so false and striking. But still, there's a similarity. And then if you flip it over to Wilson and The Great Silence, you have this brooding... Obviously, The Great Silence can't speak, he, he's mute. But you have these characters who say very, very little, have a very similar code, and also the same mission, which is to place themselves into situations where they can legally murder someone. The notion of being able to legally murder someone just highlights a lot of the twisted morality that is present in the great silence. seems to be an unwritten code of law between a lot of the bounty hunters and the sheriffs. There is this beautiful sort of comparison to be made between Shane and the great silence on the point that Tom and Chris have, have highlighted. But it's one of just many. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons that I think these movies pair so well together. In theme after theme, we see The Great Silence provide a sort of reversal or, or a counter-argument to the theme as it was expressed in Shane. We see it with the treatment of the law, the treatment of violence. The violence in Shane is very sort of uh, delayed. It's always coming later than you think it will. We see Shane is insulted in the bar in town, but he doesn't react. Uh, he actually waits, you know, 10, 15 minutes in, in screen time until a second visit to the bar to retaliate. The violence in, in The Great Silence is sudden, it's random, it's unexpected, it's unreasonable. Uh, there seems to be no way to prevent it. Whereas the violence in Shane was slow, was reasonable. There's so much discussion that happens before things get to a point of violence. There's also such an interesting contrast between the women lead in both of these films, where in Shane, you know, John Arthur is this moral authority that really wants peace and, is tr- and essentially represents the New West. Her wish of getting the guns out of the valley is kind of the morality that the film takes up. In The Great Silence, the widow... Her urge is only for revenge, for more and more and more violence. And that is also kind of the morality the film ends up taking. But, uh, let's say it's the tone the film takes. It's another great point of comparison. The female character in Shane is important to the plot, but never really is her own actor in the plot. She's important to the starrets, but she has no real agency. Decisions are constantly driven by her husband and by Shane himself. Uh, whereas we see in The Great Silence that the decisions made by the female lead, played by Vanetta McGee, really provides the driving force for the plot, and it's her desires and what she wants that's continually moving the plot forward. It's interesting to note that in The Great Silence, even the women aren't safe from the danger of the, the bounty hunters. There's a few pretty nasty deaths in that respect. And I also wanted to mention the great director Sergio Leone. When he started making his spaghetti westerns, he wanted to rid the West of talky characters who slow down the plot so that he could concentrate on the action. And Corbucci takes this and runs with it as mute hero in silence. One of the most memorable moments of the film for me is when Silence's hand gets burnt in the hot coals and there's this, you imagine it to be like a guttural kind of scream 
but because he can't speak, the camera just focuses in and there's this horrible silent scream. And that, for me, is one of the standout parts of the film. Can we also take a moment to appreciate the fact that this is John Lewis Trintingham's only Western in his entire career. I mean, this is one of France's most prolific actors, and this was the only time he showed up in the Western. And, of course, it's also completely mute. Granted, with dubbing, it wouldn't have mattered anyways. But it's just like the kind of aura and kind of intensity he brings to the role is absolutely incredible. His performance is great, not only his expressions, but the way he moves and the emotion that he conveys with his eyes. And I feel that a lot of that is enhanced by Morricone's soundtrack that brings to life a lot of the feelings that you imagine his character is going through at any point. I think we can also take another moment to talk about the difference in cinematic styles here, and just which also differs these two categories of Western so Darkly. In Shane, of course, you have all of these beautiful panorama shots. And in The Great Silence, like so many Westerns, you have most of the standard tropes from, you know, instant camera zooms, just so much movement. And it does, in some way, eat into just the cinematographic beauty of it a little bit, though it doesn't hurt that much, just thanks to the landscape. But it still has this slightly cheaper, slightly more efficient way of making a film, which of course also works because it's a much harsher kind of story. Yeah, I think the, the cinematic style in The Great Silence is, is a perfect example of the larger spaghetti western style. Editing is abrupt, there are extreme close-ups, dubbing is, is just awful, uh, the production design is sort of rough and unpolished, there's a general slapdash feeling to the entire enterprise, it feels and looks a little bit cheap, and this contrasts of course with the very classic Hollywood style of Shane. But that's not to say that the spaghetti western style is bad, uh, it can be bad, there are definitely some points where the film is very overexposed, and you kind of think, what am I looking at here? But uh, that same style also gives the story a lot of energy. Some of the negative attributes that you mentioned there, Adam, of the film's production, I think they enhance the visceral feeling, the rawness of it, and they work well with the, the violence. And the cinematography does have moments of brilliance. This is one of the best spaghetti westerns. So it's nice to see that Corbucci elevates the kind of pulp leanings of a spaghetti western to something that does have quite a lot of cinematic beauty throughout. And I also think that unlike so many other spaghetti westerns, The Great Silence is a lot more mellow, you know, even into Morricone's beautiful soundtrack. It's not as loud or clear or, you know, catchy as you would find them in Leone's movie or Corbucci's other movies. Like, com- compare the, the soundtrack here. Com- com- just compare that to, say... Uh, the film Corbucci made the next year, now Companeros, which is probably one of the most catchy spaghetti western tracks of all time, because with all of the singing, all of that melody just driving through the entire film, it, it's just such a different atmosphere from so many other spaghetti westerns. I agree, and it shows the tremendous range of the lamented Ennio Morricone. I love the comparison to Companeros, which has a very sort of high-energy fast driving score. It's similar to the score from Death Rides a Horse. Here we see Morricone take a much different approach for a story that is not nearly as rousing as Compañeros. Here the score is a little slower, a little more contemplative, a little more sad. Still very beautiful. Can I also ask one question because you mentioned the atrocious dubbing. Like when you watch a spaghetti western, do you prefer to watch it in the English dub or in the Italian dub or or, or any other? I, I think every spaghetti western I've seen has, I've only had the English dub available. I remember when I saw spaghetti westerns as a kid, I found it odd that the, uh, the sounds of the characters' dialogue did not match the movement of their, their faces on screen. And the funny thing is, I mean, to this day, I, I will refuse to see any dubbed movie with the exception of spaghetti westerns. And I've just learned to accept it as something that is intrinsic to the genre itself uh there will be bad dubbing and in some ways i guess maybe it's adds to the charm a little bit 
I totally agree with Adam there. I'm not really a fan of, of dubbing. I can't think of many people that would be. But in spaghetti westerns, it's something that goes hand in hand with the genre and you just get used to it. And, you know, you kind of forget that it's there after a while. So it doesn't really detract from the experience for me. That's such an interesting point as well, because whenever I can, I actually watch it in Italian and uh, like the great silence now when I watch it. I don't remember if I saw it in English the first time. But this time I got the Blu-ray of it, which had the Italian track as well. And that was, I think the Italian track for me at least is better because first of all, I'll be reading the subtitles as well. So I won't be focused on their mouths and it just runs a little bit smooth for me. I do exactly the same thing with uh, when I watch Giallo films as well in that I just, I really don't like the sound dubbing. I can get used to it. And if there's only the English dub, that works fine. And some can be great all the same. You know, the Dollar Trilogy and the, the only movies are dubbed quite well. But if I can, I always go for the Italian version. There's one more comparison I want to point out before we get to the ending. Uh, there's one more comparison I want to mention that I thought was really interesting between The Great Silence and Shane, and that is the scenic aspects of both movies. They're both among the most beautiful Westerns I've seen just in terms of the scenery, which of course scenery is, is one of the main appeals traditionally of the Western. Shane, we have this great setting in Wyoming. For people familiar with the American West, you can very clearly see it's in what is now Grand Teton National Park, that is the Grand Teton Massif behind uh, the set. But it's also a very welcoming environment and it's very subtle, but um, I thought one of the the sort of background themes of shame was how welcoming environmentally this valley is. We see this beautiful, ready source of water flowing through the Starrett Ranch, even though Wyoming is traditionally a very dry state. The comparison with The Great Silence, of course, is The Great Silence is also stunningly beautiful, but it's a much more threatening environment. It's a dangerous environment. The extreme snowiness is a constant hazard to the characters. We see one character die because of the threat of the environment. And the other thing, of course, is that the snow is a disguise. Uh, Multiple times throughout the movie, we see guns and corpses emerge from the snowbanks. There's a suggestion that the snow is hiding the essential violence of the land. That's a great point, Adam. I like how the snow backdrop isn't just a backdrop. It plays an integral part of the story in many aspects particularly where the villain of the piece, Loco, will kill them. And because he's unable to transport them to the sheriff, he'll just leave them in the snow because he knows that their bodies will stay fresh so we can return to them at a later time to collect them. And at this point, I think to dive as deep as we can into the Great Silence, we have to talk about the ending. Spoiler warning. I think there's a really interesting thing here, setting expectations. In Shane, you know, we saw Shane riding into town on his own accord. He was in his best element. In The Great Silence, before the showdown is even set, he is hurt, deeply hurt. He was already beaten. Then his hand, his shooting hand, was burnt. You're just consistently taking away more and more of the likelihood of the Great Silence being successful or being a threat at all. He just shown as becoming weaker and weaker and weaker to the point that as the climax is coming, he is in hiding, barely able to move. The women are protecting him. And then, based on the sheriff's good nature, the bandits, if you want to call them that, have come to town to eat. But unbeknownst to the sheriff, a different pack of bounty hunters have come riding down. They have captured all of them. They have taken them into the bar at the threat of death. And Kinski presents a stark and clear challenge. Come out, fight me one-to-one, and if you win... Nothing will happen. My men will let everybody go. And especially based on the very clear code 
of morality that, you know, even though it's cheeky, you, you have seen some bounty hunters beforehand, you're not sure if you can trust it or not, but you, you're pretty sure you can't. And even if you can, Shane is so weak that you, you don't think he'll be able to do it. But he rises to the challenge, he goes out into the snow, he shows up in front of the bar with his unburned hand, not the shooting hand, but his unburned hand, ready to pull the trigger. And for a second, you feel the hope. For a second, you feel that the Great Silence could actually be able to pull first. Like, even against all of this diversity, the hero could still come out on top. But then, just as in Shane, there is a second gunman pointing a rifle. And unlike Shane, this gunman shoots first. He shoots his only good hand. To the point that you now know that the Great Silence has no way of making this. He falls to his knees. Both his hands are unable to grab the gun. Loco comes out and you're not sure what to expect. Cut back, of course. The sheriff we now believe is dead. He was shot through the eyes by Loco as Loco escaped. And if this was, you know, maybe a classic Western, at this point, there might have been, for instance, a reveal that the sheriff actually survived. He climbed up of the ice. Maybe he got help, rolled back and would save the day. You know, you're trying to think, is there any hope? Is there any hope whatsoever? What can happen? But there isn't. There just isn't. He's shot dead. Dead. The widow runs over to him, grabs the gun, ready to shoot. She's killed as well. Both of them are laying dead. The bounty hunters turn to their captives and shoot each and every single one. There's so much violence in just these two, three minutes. Everyone is dead. The bad guys are victorious and they ride away, ready to collect their reward. And interestingly, and unlike almost every other spaghetti western, we now realize that this is actually in part based on a true story as you get the text coming up that this massacre changed how the West viewed bounty hunters forever, giving us at the very least a kind of relief, a kind of understanding that this changed something for the better. But all the same, the bleakness, the coldness, the brutality is still with us. And just to add, this last segment saying it's based on a real story, we're not even sure if we can verify that. That could even be just a motif added to give the story a little bit more of a happy ending. Can you even say that? (laughs) So how did that ending leave you guys? The first time I watched The Great Silence, I was completely stunned and shocked by the ending. It's so bleak and nasty. And like you said, Chris, it completely subverts the audience's expectations. Because even though silence, the odds are stacked against him, you just think that there could be a glimmer of hope. He could somehow survive this. And the film does lead you to believe that he may make it out alive, but ultimately goes down the darker route, which perhaps is the reason why The Great Silence is so well acclaimed or renowned now for the route that it takes with the ending. It's interesting to note that The Great Silence wasn't even released in the UK or the US because its ending was deemed too pessimistic for the audience's sensibilities. And Corbucci was actually forced to shoot a happy ending where the sheriff does survive his fall into the lake and save silence. But I think that the ending as it stands is perfect. I wouldn't change anything. And I like that the fate of the sheriff falling into the lake is never explicitly shown. So when silence is up against Loco in the final moments, you do kind of think in the back of your head, well, has the sheriff survived? Is there a chance that he could make it out? 
and that just adds an extra layer to the finale. Like Tom, I had the exact same reaction when I first saw The Great Silence about 15 years ago. I was completely stunned. Uh, I just couldn't believe that this would happen in a Western. It's, it's one of the reasons I, I like the movie as much as I did. It's indicative of direction of Westerns in the late 60s and the 70s. Westerns became increasingly bleak, increasingly cynical, increasingly violent, and increasingly depressing. What really strikes me is how that ending scene subverts all of our expectations of what should happen in the final showdown. It's not just that our hero doesn't win. It's that he doesn't really have a chance. First, his gun hand is injured, but that's okay. We think he can get through that. After all, in Corbucci's previous movie, Django, Django has his hands broken before the final showdown, and yet he is still able to emerge victorious. Well, that won't happen for us here. Uh, the Great Silence never gets his one-on-one -on -one showdown with Klaus Kinski. Instead, he's ambushed from a window by one of Kinski's henchmen, shot through the other hand. He's completely helpless. He's shot again through the window by the henchmen, and then Kinski finishes him off. If the movie had just ended there, it would have already been very subversive and quite shocking, but that's not enough. Widow is then murdered, and then this what really can only be called this massacre of the bandits. It, it, it is probably the most surprising and shocking ending I've ever seen in a Western, one of the most shocking I've seen in any movie. And, and like you both pointed out, this is one of the reasons why this film is also held up as just one of the greatest Westerns of all time, because anyone watching this film for the first time will be shocked. Like it's just this progression of the end gives it so much power that even if something didn't work for you, even if you, know, you saw it with the English dub and you thought some of it is bad, like that ending, it gets you. It's impossible not to get you. And I think the only issue for me rewatching it is that some of that slight drama is decreased. Like so much of the great silence is that you don't know what will happen. It subverts every trope. Surprise is such a magnificent part of your first viewing, which is not as strong on later viewings. But still, that ending, it gets you. It gets you every single time. I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris. I rewatched The Great Silence this week. It was the second time I saw it. I didn't quite enjoy it nearly as much as I did the first time. I think that's no fault of the movie itself. It's just that so much of the enjoyment of the movie comes from not knowing the plot ahead of you. I remember the first time I saw it, for example, one of the great mysteries of the movie is why does silence not speak? It's something that's not revealed until halfway through the movie. Knowing the reason for that when seeing it again detracts a lot from the enjoyment, but it's still, it's a magnificent movie. It's just that a lot of the enjoyment of the movie comes from the surprises and the mysteries along the way. I think the one thing I'm happy about, or, or and which you, the audience, might be a little bit disappointed about, is that there, there weren't any great showdown, even though we all have different preferences. I think both the classic westerns and the spaghetti westerns have so much to offer, so much diversity, and so much subversion that can make them infinitely interesting. Just these two films taken side by side gave us a full episode to explore their deeper intentions and, and their place in Western history. And both had so much to offer, including some of the things we did not get the time to mention here. And I think there are so many other great spaghetti Westerns we could also have done a comparison with other fantastic and great classic Westerns. So, just to leave you with this, this will not be our last Western episode. We will return at one point in the not-so-distant future with our Dollar Trilogy episode, and I'm sure there will be much, much more to come down the road. So thank you for listening, and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.